Hello, and welcome to Nothing Ever Happens in Canada, but we know this is simply not true. This is a Canadian podcast about the myths, legends, and just good old stories Canada has to tell. I'm Canadian Girl. Thanks so much for joining me here today on this true crime northern adventure. But first, like always, we have to do a little bit of that business stuff to help keep this little podcast going. If you are loving this podcast, please let me know by leaving a review or a comment on the app you're listening to, like Teresa Smith just did. Teresa left not only one, but two lovely comments on the CastBox app. And Teresa, I can't thank you enough for sharing with me your tale about Chuck the Channel Catfish, who lives in Selkirk, Manitoba. Teresa reached out after listening to our episode, our very large Easter egg road trip bonus episode here on the channel, which was a road trip across Canada looking at all the very large and interesting roadside attractions you can find here. She reached out to me to let me know about Selkirk, Manitoba, who claims to be the catfish capital of the world because of the many record-sized catfish that have been caught in the Red River that runs through the area. Most famously, Chuck, a 33-foot-tall fiberglass catfish statue that was placed there in 1986 to honor a local fisherman named Chuck Norquay, who sadly passed away in the river that same year. Thanks so much, Teresa, for your kind words and, of course, that great story about Chuck, the very large catfish in Selkirk, Manitoba. You made this Canadian Girls' Day. Leaving comments and reviews means so much to this little Canadian podcast as it allows us to move around on the podcast charts and meet more awesome listeners just like you. Another awesome way to help support the show is by donation. For as little as $1, you can help this show out so much. There are so many hidden fees that come along with hosting a podcast. I thank you all for your generous support of the show always. To find the link to leave a review or make a donation, they can always be found in the show notes below. Or the link to make a donation can always be found at nothingcanada.com at the top of the page. Now enough about that business stuff as we have a very big true crime adventure to get to today in the very cold Northwest Territories here in Canada. Grab your warmest winter clothes, and I'm not kidding, your best winter boots, hats, scarves, coats, and mitts. And actually, make sure you bring multiple pairs of mitts. We don't want anyone going without any mitts up here. Also, make sure you bring some snacks, as it's going to be a very long adventure this time, and you're going to want them up here in the very cold, very north of Canada for one of the biggest manhunts this country has ever seen. Trigger warning here, this is a true crime tale that took place many years ago, Such services available today were not present at the time. Actions may seem harsh at times. Guns are mentioned more than once and used more than once throughout the tale and lives will be taken. If any of this is triggering to you or those around you who may be listening today, please skip this adventure today and head out on a different one here on the channel. That being said, if you're sticking around, do those coats up tight. Pull that hat down over your ears and make sure your mitts are tucked in. 
We're heading to the Great White North here in Canada. Our story today takes us to the Northwest Territories here in Canada, a place most of us don't get to travel to very often. For a true crime tale that's almost hard to believe that it happened, and even more shocking to most, is where it took place. The middle of nowhere, way up north in Canada. And in the dead of winter. That's right, that very, very cold Canadian weather I have told you about before. Before we get too far into this adventure today, I want to say a quick thanks to my dad. Shout out to you, my favorite wizard. We get to go on this adventure today because he passed down a very unique old book to me called, spoiler alert here, The Death of Albert Johnson by Frank W. Anderson. I used this book to research the majority of the tale today. So again, shout out to my dad for the book. I absolutely loved it. And thank you to Mr. Frank W. Anderson for providing so much information in his book. But let's get going on this adventure today. We don't want to waste any more time. We're about to join one of the largest manhunts in Canada's history for the mad trapper of Rat River. But first, we must meet Constable Edgar Millen. He was born in Belfast, Ireland in May 1901. He was the second of four children and immigrated to Canada as a young boy with his family. Upon arriving in Canada, Edgar Millen would complete grade 8 at the Parkdale School in Edmonton, Alberta. Just a few years later, he would find himself posted in Aklavik. I hope I said this close to right a very small hamlet located in the Northwest Territories, which has a population of about 1,500 people today. It was most likely much less than this back in June 1923 when the 6-foot, 170-pound Constable Edgar Millen would arrive and start his career in the North. It wasn't just his upholding of the law that Constable Millen was known for up here in the Northwest Territories. It said he was also an amazing pastry chef and people could not get enough of his baked goods. After spending his summer holidays in Edmonton visiting his family in June 1931, he was offered a corporal position at the Arctic Red River Post, where he would live and be in charge. Millen politely declined the offer, stating that he was not a paperwork guy, hoping that he would get stationed somewhere else, anywhere else but the cold north again. He soon found his only option was to take the position in the far north, and he accepted it. Only now, it didn't come with the fancy corporal title that was originally offered, and he still had to do all the paperwork he was trying to avoid in the first place. As part of his daily patrols in his new home, he was to head over to Fort McPherson and keep an eye on things over there. When one day he was pointed in the direction of a new individual that had come to town, a man that quickly became wrongfully identified as Albert Johnson, even though it is a known fact that this was not the man's true name at all. It is the name that stuck with him throughout history, so we will call him that today. Millen approached the new stranger in town, who was causing quite a fuss. He had arrived on July the 9th, 1931, and not only did he just show up by sailing into Fort McPherson, he did it on what I understand to be a very poorly put together raft, which was basically three logs tied together. Picture Jack Sparrow sailing into that port on that sinking ship, 
and you've got the story of how Albert Johnson came sailing down the Peel River and into Fort McPherson. He then began flashing around a can, you know, those magic baking powder tins that you have all seen before. Today, they are most likely to be plastic, but Mr. Johnson, the unknown visitor, had the magic baking powder tin tied on a string, then had it on a loop around his neck, like the old UNICEF boxes here in Canada on Halloween. What he was flashing around was money, lots of money, and not just Canadian money, Mr. Johnson also had American money. Even though he said very little words the whole time he was there in town, he made sure everyone knew he had money. And he spent it, lots of it, buying himself new equipment to head up to the Rat River area and a ton of other supplies. And that's all we really know for sure, because of the few words he said, that was probably the most we know that he was planning to head up to the Rat River area, because on July 12th, Albert Johnson purchased a shotgun from Mr. W. W. Douglas from the Northwest Traders Limited store and would tell the store owner his intentions. Constable Millen had no problem with a man stopping through to load up on supplies and continue on. But in this case, the unknown man was saying that he was going to stay in the Rat River area, which is about 32 kilometers or 20 miles northwest of Fort McPherson. This meant he would need to have a trapper's license. It is required by law in the Northwest Territories. Millen approached the unknown man, who stood 5 foot 10 and about 170 pounds, about 35 to 40 years old, had light blonde hair that was receding, very pale blue eyes, and he strangely had longer arms than normal, as Millen remembers him. The man known as Albert Johnson. On July 21, 1931, after collecting some local intel on the new character in town, Millen then asked just that, if his intent was to stay, and if it was that he needed to buy a trapper's license, and where he had come from. Albert Johnson, being a man of little words, simply told Millen he wasn't staying in the Northwest Territories. He was moving on to the Yukon. He also told him he had been working on the prairies over the summer on a Canadian farm. Millen at the time had no real reason to not believe the man and took his word for it. Constable Millen worked at a time when many Canadian, American, and anyone else who managed to find their way up there to the Great White North came looking for refuge from anything and everything. They would just want to take off and live in the bush alone by themselves, which of course was fine, but you had to be equipped and able to handle yourself out there. Constable Millen was convinced Johnson was one of these men as he seemed to have the means to take care of himself and he had made it this far already on what appeared to be next to nothing. But Constable Millen would continue to gather info on the new man in town before he left and he found he was in fact buying more equipment and such to head out into the bush. So Millen went on about his business and forgot about the strange new man in town known as Albert Johnson. But Albert Johnson did not forget about him or his questions. Just as soon as he arrived, he was gone again. Buying a canoe from the local indigenous just one week after Constable Millen had arrived and started asking questions about him. He packed it full of his supplies and the equipment he had purchased in town at Fort McPherson and headed out to set up his new home on July 28, 1931. He left down the Peel River the same way he came in. <laughs>
Once the so-called Albert Johnson arrived in the Rat River area, he found a bank just off the river that seemed to catch his eye, just 200 yards or 600 feet from the Yukon border, and he began to set up his log cabin there. Though it was a very rustic log cabin, it did have windows and a door. The rest of the cabin was made from trees, and dirt was used to fill in the holes where needed. You don't want any holes in your cabin up here when the weather is as cold as it is. A man of his means and money at the time could have gone anywhere he wanted, you would think. Or maybe there was a reason Johnson wanted to hide in a land so far away no one would ever find him and under a name that did not belong to him. Whoever he was, he was a skilled man and when it came to surviving in the back country, on one's own, he had no problem doing that. Not only did he build his cabin, he also built caches around his property to store his food and supplies in, keeping them up high and away from his own cabin as one would in that situation, showing again the knowledge he had to survive in the back country. In December 1931, Johnson would experience his first winter in the area. He would come across the local indigenous's trap lines in which he claimed to be his area, and as a warning, he took them all down and hung them up on a tree. Johnson was in fact wrong. The land did not belong to him at all. It was in fact the indigenous trapper's land, and those lines should not have been taken down. The indigenous did not take Johnson's threat lightly either. They went to local Constable Millen at the Arctic Red River Post. This is when some say the name Albert Johnson was attached to the man in the woods unintentionally. When the indigenous men reported the trapper to the authorities, it is said they named him as Albert Johnson, believing it truly was the man's identity. When we now know today, it was in fact not. Constable Millen had a feeling right away he knew who Albert Johnson was. He was the same strange character that he had met back in July that summer that told him he would not be trapping here in the Northwest Territories and would be moving on to the Yukon. Millen was right indeed. It was Albert Johnson. On December 26, just one day after Christmas, Constable Millen would bring Alfred W. King and Special Constable Joseph Bernard to help him investigate the report he took from the local indigenous about the trap lines. They would take a trip out to Johnson's cabin, which was about 50 miles to about 80 kilometers across the freezing Canadian cold tundra. They left at 7 a.m. that morning in the pure darkness. They would make it 46 kilometers or 29 miles to Fort McPherson, which was just over half of their total trip to get to Johnson's cabin. On the second night, they would make it just to the mouth of the Rat River, where they spent what they all described as an awful night due to the cold weather. The plan was the next morning to head out on the last 15 miles or 24 kilometers to Johnson's cabin and arrive by 10 a.m., just when the sun was coming up and light was on their side for the day. Once close to the cabin, the dogs were left down below on the river as the officers made their way up the steep bank and towards Johnson's cabin. Right outside Johnson's door was a pair of very poorly made snowshoes, which meant to the officers that Johnson was indeed there or nearby. There was also smoke coming out of the chimney, another sign Johnson was home. Constable King would be the first to approach the cabin door. He gave it a knock. The kind you know, it is someone from authority, and you better open it. No one did. No one moved inside the cabin at all. 
Constable King then announced himself and said he wanted to speak to the owner of the cabin. Still, no answer. Constable King pulled at the cabin door, but it wouldn't budge. It was locked. This was a red flag right away for the officer, as it is common practice in the back country to leave one's doors unlocked in case others traveling across the harsh terrain may need a spot to stay for the night or just a few hours to get their strength back up and continue on. The officers stayed for over an hour knocking and calling out to Johnson to come out of the cabin, but he did not budge or move a muscle. So the officers had no choice other than to head back to their headquarters in Aklavik and obtain a warrant to enter the cabin from their commanding officer, Inspector A.N. Eames. They of course told this to the unknown man in the cabin, said to be Albert Johnson, but again, he did not move or make a single sound, so the officers left to get their paperwork. After receiving a warrant from Inspector Eames, the party prepared to head back out again, but this time Constable Millen would stay behind and man his post in the Arctic Red River. The four-man team included Constable King and Constable Bernard, who had already been on the first mission out to Johnson's cabin. They would leave at 7 a.m. on December 30th. This time, they were leaving better prepared, though. They had brought with them a special issue of rifles on top of their regular guns strapped to their belts. Their plan was to set up camp quickly for the night and arrive at Johnson's cabin for 10.30 a.m. again when the sun was on their side on December 31st, the very next day. It was also New Year's Eve. When the officers arrived at the cabin again just off the Rat River, they again saw the poorly made snowshoes just outside the cabin door and smoke coming from the chimney signaling again that the trapper, known as Albert Johnson, should be home, or at least nearby. Constable King would approach the cabin door and knock again and call out, Are you there, Mr. Johnson? Less than a second later, a bullet came blasting through the unopened door and hit Constable King right in the chest, taking him straight down. He lay in the snow as the other three officers stood in shock. Constable Robert G. McDowell would then run to the front of the dog sled grab a rifle, and began to open fire on the cabin in effort to protect his fallen comrade from any further shots. It worked. Johnson began to fire back at the direction of Constable McDowell, giving Constable King just enough time to crawl out of the area where he managed to get to his feet, in which he took off for the riverbank and back down to the remaining dog sleds. He slid down the embankment as the other officers raced to his aid. A sled was cleared of all supplies and Constable King was laid inside. This time, the 80-mile or 129-kilometer trip back to Aklavik was made in just 20 hours as they tried to save their fellow officer's life. The trip normally takes two days. They arrived on January 1st at 7 a.m., 1932, at the local hospital in Aklavik. The constable was rushed into surgery right away where they found the bullet just missed his heart by a mere inch. Luck was on Constable King's side for sure that day. Not only did the bullet just miss his heart, it is said he also didn't eat the night before New Year's Eve, as he wanted to make it back in time for a local New Year's Eve party after attending Johnson's cabin. Because he left without eating that night, he had no food in his stomach, which ultimately helped save his life. 
Luck was on Constable King's side for sure that day as he would survive his brush with Albert Johnson. Inspector Eames had to decide what to do next to deal with Mr. Johnson. He had now committed a serious crime and needed to be apprehended. Knowing that sending even more men and dogs to take down Albert Johnson would be even more costly. Inspector Eames didn't see any other way of doing it. There was no way Albert Johnson would surrender to just a couple men. Inspector Eames decided to go with a party of seven men and 42 dogs to make the 80-mile or 129-kilometer journey back to Johnson's cabin. The party would head out on January 4, 1932, and radio messages were sent to Constable Millen in the Arctic Red River to meet them at Blake's store on the Husky River. Another radio message was sent to Fort McPherson, asking for the local indigenous guide, Charlie Ratt, to come assist them in approaching Johnson's cabin from a better angle. They would all meet up at Blake's store on the Husky River on January 5th. Before leaving Blake's store on the Husky River, they would purchase 20 pounds of dynamite to take to Johnson's cabin as a backup. Inspector Eames asked the local indigenous guide, Mr. Ratt, to take them to the backside of Johnson's cabin as he would not be expecting them to come from that way and be less prepared. The party would reach the Rat River on January 7th and at the same time realized their so-called local guide did not seem to be guiding them in the right direction. They were now six miles past Johnson's cabin and had to backtrack wasting time, food, energy, and so much more. They were all running low on. After backtracking, they made it back to the area around Johnson's cabin where they set up camp for the night. It was a very chilly minus 40 that evening. After battling the bad weather and getting a bit off track, they had finally made it to Johnson's cabin on January 9th at their favorite time of day, 10.30, when the sun was up. That's five days later on a trip that was supposed to take two days. Supplies were almost diminished and the overall team was at a low. They would make their way up the river this time in order not to miss their mark. As Inspector Eames approached the cabin, he called to Johnson to come out again. But again, like every time before, there was no answer at all. Inspector Eames called out again, asking Johnson to come outside as they had a warrant and wanted to speak to him. Johnson began shooting from the cabin again, running from side to side. He would take aim at anyone and anything he could. The officers fired back at the cabin. Their bullets had no effect on the solid wood structure. Johnson used two guns at once in both hands and was very efficient. It was obvious right from the beginning that this man knew how to defend himself at all costs. The two trappers in the party, Carl Garland and Nut Lang, managed to get Johnson's cabin door open during the gun battle and could see Johnson crouching down in what we now know today to be a five-foot dugout he had made in the ground of his cabin. Johnson spun around from under where the cabin floor would be and took two shots at the pair of men at the same time he fired from both hands and the trappers ran for their lives. Eventually, the party retreated to set up camp for the night and come up with a new plan to get Johnson out of the cabin. All night, they could hear Johnson rummaging around, opening and closing his doors over and over again and firing at any little noise he heard. That's when they decided it was time to thaw out the dynamite they had purchased. They placed the sticks of dynamite inside their coats as a way to thaw them out. Trapper Nut Lang would take a bomb-type object made from the dynamite and snuck as close as he could to Johnson's cabin. He threw it at Johnson's roof and ran. 
They waited as it went off, and it only made the smallest hole ever. It was a complete fail. The party was so cold, tired, and hungry, and ready to give up again and turn back. Inspector Eames decided he would make one last final attempt to get Johnson out of the cabin, throwing all the dynamite they had left at the front of the cabin and waited as it went off, the entire cabin collapsed. As they approached with a spotlight to see if Albert Johnson had perished inside, Johnson opened fire and shot the spotlight right out of the trapper Garland's hands. Seeing the defeat and tire on his men's faces and not wanting anyone else to get hurt, Inspector Eames ordered his men to bed for one hour as they would be heading out at 4 a.m. on January 11th to head back to Aklavik to rest and recharge. Just a couple days after the party arrived back in Aklavik, the press had taken the story about the mad trapper, the name the press had given to Albert Johnson, in the north and how he could not be caught and that he had shot an officer. The story was so big, in fact, it had gone worldwide. People were either on one side of the fence or the other with this case. Some rooted for Johnson to get away and others wanted him apprehended for his crimes. Then there was Albert Johnson himself. Who was this man? The press went to work, as they always do, to try and find out just that. The whole story played out like a movie from the wild west of the north. The press and its readers could not get enough of it. Feeling the pressure of the world watching now, Inspector Eames knew they must apprehend their man no matter what. In the midst of the press going wild with the tale, Constable Millen left with a party again to go back up the Rat River and get their man. They made the run in two days without any delays this time and were able to sneak up to the cabin in the daylight on January 15th, thanks to a winter blizzard blowing through. But what they discovered was that Johnson had also left during that blizzard to most likely do the same thing that they were trying to do, disappear in the blowing snow. They went inside the cabin and searched around. They could not find one piece of information with Albert Johnson's name on it. No letters, no mail, no clue was left as to who he was. So he remained Albert Johnson. All they did find was the canoe he had bought from the local indigenous family that he used to get up there. And they located his other storage with his many supplies and extra food. One would need to survive a harsh winter, but again, no bills, receipts, or anything with a name on it was found. They had no hope of tracking Johnson's footprints either. Other than the few they could see leaving from the cabin, the rest had vanished in the wind and the snow. Constable Millen would send word to Inspector Eames and Aklavik to follow behind with another party as Johnson had left his cabin. News and radio reports had sparked fear into lone cabin dwellers in the area, and most of them made their way to police headquarters for protection while the manhunt across the Great White North continued. Everyone was on the lookout for Johnson. Even local trappers in the area tried to use their skills to help locate him. On January 16th, Inspector Eames had received Constable Millen's request for backup and left with another party to help assist in the manhunt. Once Inspector Eames' party reached the mouth of the Rat River, they set up camp and began to search the area for Johnson or any sign of him to follow. The problem was Johnson had proven to be so elusive in the back country that every stack of sticks or pile of brush had to be approached with such caution you just never knew 
This made search efforts so incredibly slow. The next day, Constable Eames and Constable Millen's party would finally meet up. Between the two, they had found no sign of Johnson. By January 21st, Inspector Eames began to consider his options again as supplies were at a minimum only four days left with the large team out there. He decided to send Constable Millen and his party on with all the supplies pretty much, giving them about a nine or ten day supply with a much smaller team and Inspector Eames' party would head back to Aklavik again. He also figured since Constable Millen was the only officer who had actually seen and spoken to Johnson in person, it was best that he be there to identify him when the time came. Constable Millen and his party would head back to Johnson's cabin to try and track down a trail again, now that the blizzard had passed. They were successful and found a trail leading to the Bear River area. Because Johnson had such a unique pair of snowshoes, he had a very unique footprint to track. They searched the area, of course, and found nothing. They headed back to their camp again that they had established at the Rat River. Taking a day's rest on January 27th, they received word the next day from the local indigenous people in the area that shots had been heard around the Bear River. This meant Johnson could be hunting for food up there, so off they went to track him down. On January 30th, around 11 a.m., the party came across tracks about 5 miles or 8 kilometers up the river. They led to what looked to be a makeshift shelter out of sticks, a few broken trees, boulders, and snow. There were footprints leading right to the shelter and no prints leading away from it, which was a good sign that someone was still inside. As they approached closer, they split up, a few heading up top above the shelter and a couple heading right towards it. As they approached, they could hear a man coughing inside, but they could not see him. Suddenly, without any warning, Johnson opened fire again right at Constable Millen. The trapper who went in with Constable Millen returned fire and Johnson dropped to the ground. They thought they may have actually hit their man, so they all opened fire on the makeshift shelter. When no movement was heard, they were about to approach when they decided to wait it out. Knowing Johnson was such a tactical man when it came to this, they decided to wait two hours in silence in the freezing cold before making their move again. The entire two hours, Johnson did not cough, move, or even breathe as far as they could tell. They were feeling pretty confident that they had finally got their man. When they were just 75 feet from the shelter, Johnson popped up and opened fire again, hitting Constable Millen while the others scrambled for cover. Millen stood his ground and fired two more shots at Johnson, and Johnson returned three. Constable Millen went down. The trapper who was with Constable Millen immediately began to crawl across the snow and get his fallen comrade out of any harm's way. Johnson went silent again and the party made their way back out to safety and set up camp where they could keep an eye on Johnson and protect Constable Millen's body until it could be retrieved. The party member with the fastest dog team was sent to deliver a message about Constable Millen. It would reach Inspector Eames on February 2nd. He was devastated immediately and put together another party to head out and deal with the mad trapper once and for all. Have you been to the Nothing Canada souvenir shop lately? Here you can find everything from face masks to comfy t-shirts, hoodies, 
There's notebooks to write down all your great plans for whenever we finally get out of this crazy lockdown stuff. There's towels, mugs, tote bags, and so much more. And they're all from your favorite adventures here on the channel, like the Yukon UFO, the What the Maple Syrup True Crime Adventure, Women in Writing, Mystery Mountain, and so many more. Head over to this souvenir shop today and grab a piece of your favorite adventure. The link to the souvenir shop can always be found in the show notes below or at nothingcanada.com. Our world is full of truly strange things. Mysteries left unsolved, ancient treasures left buried beneath the sands, occult knowledge lost to the centuries long since past, and monsters lurking in our world's jungles, forests, and ocean depths, still waiting to be truly discovered. These are the things we seek on Into the Portal podcast. Venture into realms beyond our understanding every other Sunday as we discuss myths, legends, historical mysteries, lost artifacts, UFO encounters, cryptozoology, and more. Find the gateway to our interdimensional listening experience everywhere you get your podcasts and at intotheportal.com. Endless possibilities lie on the other side. The question is, do you dare venture into the portal? to straightupstrange.com today and check out not only our strange family but also our amazing collection of strange merch that's straightupstrange.com to check us all out inspector eames would head out again on february 3rd 1932 and this time he took a very large party with him to deal with the so-called mad trapper Inspector Eames knew for a fact that Johnson was not the madman the press had made him out to be. He was highly skilled and most likely had some sort of military training to survive and defend himself in the way he did in the middle of the frozen tundra. This feat most would fail miserably at. Albert Johnson has been away from his cabin since the blizzard rolled in, and even before that his cabin was blown up to a pile of rubbish that he continued to live in for some time before heading out. Eleven men in total would head out this time to capture Albert Johnson. On the same day these brave men headed out to take on the feared mad trapper of the north, a plane would leave from Edmonton, Alberta to assist in the manhunt. It would be the first time in aviation history that this would be done. On February 5th, the large party with Inspector Eames in tow would arrive at the camp overlooking Johnson's new makeshift shelter in the snow. They had a total of 17 men now and were feeling rather confident again that they could get their man. They advanced on the shelter again only to find that Johnson had managed to sneak out under the dark of night they supposed as he did it without being seen at all. They scoured the fort and found no blood and of course no type of identification at all. Just one day later they picked up his tracks again on February 6th along a small creek but then were lost again after a short time with the ever-changing snow. The very next day, the party would track down two sets of Johnson's tracks. When followed, they led back to one another, and this was the first time they realized Johnson was playing games with them. 
but they also realized that he was not actually leaving the area, just trying to make it look like he was. On February 6th, the plane would finally arrive from Edmonton, and when they went up in the air, they found Johnson's tracks right away. They also found Johnson was never far from him. He was always keeping an eye on the party. Now with the plane available for their use, supplies could be replenished more frequently, and most importantly, Constable Millen's body could be returned home. Wilford May, also known as WAP, a very skilled bush pilot, was hired for the job to combat Johnson and his backcountry skills. A fun fact, Wilford Reed May, also known as WAP, was a World War I flying ace and was a part of the legendary flight that took down the Red Baron, a German fighter pilot who was extremely skilled. Today, Wilford Reed May, he has been a part of many historic flights in the North, delivering medicine and supplies whenever and wherever needed. His skills as a bush pilot flying a small aircraft were, to say the least, amazing as people describe it. He has assisted now in many manhunts since helping in this very first one. On February 8th, another party from the Old Crow outpost on the Bell River would join up with them. They had heard the radio messages Constable Eames had sent out asking for volunteers to help with the manhunt. It was determined that Johnson was slowly moving towards the Yukon Divide, which meant he would have to cross a 5,000-foot mountain pass that, as far as anyone around knew, including the local indigenous, was not only extremely dangerous in the winter, it was almost next to impossible to be done on one's own. But this was Albert Johnson we're talking about, so you know he's doing it. On February 9th, another blizzard rolled in, making it impossible to use the plane to track down Johnson. It wasn't until the 10th, around the middle of the day, they could dig it back out again. After everyone was dug out, most of the party headed back to Aklavik to grab more supplies and left only a small party to watch over Johnson from February 10th to February 12th. Back in the world of the press, a picture was finally published claiming to be Albert Johnson on February 11, 1932. There he was, the man everyone was looking for, and other than that, there was no other real details published, but the public didn't care. They believed they had just seen a picture of the real Albert Johnson, and that was all they needed. It was in fact Albert Johnson in that photo, but it was the real Albert Johnson from Picton, B.C., who had been wrongfully accused of being the mad trapper in the North just because he had the same name. And he had spent some time in the Northwest Territories, but he was clearly present here in BC while all this was going on in the Arctic. So he was not that Albert Johnson. Back up in the Northwest Territories, that Albert Johnson seemed to have vanished again. With a lack of food, his inability to make a fire, or he would have been seen pretty much, left him in dire needs of getting over that mountain pass to what he believed was his freedom. Then on February 12th, Inspector Eames would catch a break when a local indigenous man came across Johnson's tracks just a couple miles from Lapierre House, I hope I said that close to right, in the Yukon. This meant, in fact, Johnson had crossed the pass everyone believed he couldn't, and it also meant this man had traveled 90 miles or 145 kilometers in just three days. Inspector Eames was not going to miss his man again. This time he sent two parties, one over the mountain pass, 
and the other one to Lapierre House to set up a new base camp to track Johnson from. On February 14th, Valentine's Day, for those of you lovebirds out there, the plane took off this time around Lapierre House to look for Johnson. And within just a couple minutes, they picked up his tracks again in the snow. They were heading down the Bell River. At this point, Johnson was not even making an attempt to hide his tracks like before. And then Albert Johnson lucked out. He ran into a herd of caribou that he traveled with for quite some time, hiding his tracks with theirs. The caribou tracks ended at the Eagle Creek area, so the plane came back to report their findings. On February 15th, a dense fog would roll in, grounding the plane again. That afternoon, the party that had made their way over the mountain pass arrived at the camp in Lapierre House. They are quoted as saying they had one hell of a trip over that mountain pass. Eight men had made the same trek that Johnson had made over the mountain pass and could not believe he did it alone. They found several of his camps along the mountain pass that clearly Johnson had stayed in, but again found no info leading to who he actually was. What they did learn that he was surviving off small game, which he was trapping, and tea he was drinking. They also found he was digging small snow caves to light very small fires in to cook the game and make his tea undetected. By the evening of February 16th, they knew they were catching up to their man. His tracks were still fresh in the snow along Eagle Creek and they set up camp for the night and got a good night's sleep. The party would set out very early on February 17th. Johnson's tracks were still visible in the snow under the moonlight on the early morning. Once the sun came up, the tracks began to appear pretty fresh as if they were just a mile or so behind Johnson now. Around noon that day, Albert Johnson would climb up a tree along the river to get a good look at the party tracking him. Only this time, he made a grave error. He miscalculated the direction the party was traveling in and began to head back the way he had just came. Whether it was the 150 mile or 240 kilometer pursuit that had lasted more than a month that had finally caught up with him, being weak and tired from lack of proper food and sleep, as well as the harsh weather day after day, the mad trapper who seemed so elusive before was now heading right for his captors without even knowing it. Both parties rounded the bend of Eagle Creek, both unknowing they were about to run right into each other. Johnson came around a sharp curve in the river and found himself just 900 feet away from the people he had been trying to avoid the last month or so. Staff Sergeant Earl Hersey was the first to realize they had come upon their man. Johnson dropped to the ground immediately, trying to put his snowshoes on. Sergeant Hersey ran ahead to retrieve the rifle from the sled and began to fire at Johnson as he made his way towards the river bank. Johnson, of course, would return fire, and not one to miss, hit Hersey, who was kneeling down on one knee trying to make his shot. Hersey was hit in the knee, elbow, and the chest with one single bullet by Johnson taking him down. The rest of the party quickly caught up to the scene and began to fire at Johnson as well. As the plane flew above and watched the whole gun battle go down, Johnson, even though he was shot several times, would continue to return fire until he could not anymore. He would be taken out in the end by a bullet that severed his spine. At 12.10 p.m. on February 17, 1932, the 150-mile, 240-kilometer, six-week manhunt for the man known as Albert Johnson was finally over. 
Just one day later, on February 18th, the mad trapper of Rat River, Albert Johnson, was laid to rest in the Aklavik Cemetery. His grave is marked by a very large broken tree with the letters A and J on it. Today he lives on as one of the world's greatest mysteries. His identity still holds so many captive with the tale of his life and trying to figure out just who he might have been. When he was finally captured, all that was found on him was an axe, his three guns in total, which can still be seen today at the RCMP Museum in Regina, Saskatchewan, along with his snowshoes as well. He had a backpack, a compass, tea, lard, and that magic baking powder can of money around his neck. Inside there, officers found $2,410 in all denominations. That's just under $50,000 in today's money. He also had American and Canadian dollars, leading many to believe he was possibly American. As for his stuff, most of it was purchased the summer of 1931 in Fort McPherson, where he first spoke to Constable Millen. Some more weird things found in his possession were two small bottles. One had 15 pearls, and the other had five or six pieces of gold dental work. Some say the teeth were most likely his, and others say they were definitely not his at all, making you wonder where he got them. Rumors have swirled over the years that he may be responsible for some of the many missing men that happened to wander off into the wilderness up there and are never seen again. If you remember our Nahini Valley episode, when we were last up here in the Northwest Territories, we learned about how many men were murdered and their heads were missing. Lots like to point the fact that Johnson lived not too far from the area and had many other people's gold teeth in his possession. But these are all just stories. Nothing has ever been proven. Also in Johnson's possession was a bottle of 32 pills that were used to treat the kidneys. His fingerprints were collected and sent to Washington in the U.S. and Ottawa here in Canada. No matches have ever been found. A possible candidate put forth by author Dick North and his book, Trackdown, The Search for the Mad Trapper, and possibly the best candidate as to who the elusive Johnson may be, was a man named Arthur Nelson, who arrived in the Yukon in 1927, just prior to Albert Johnson showing up in the Northwest Territories. They both had many similar characteristics. They both were of Scandinavian descent, something even Constable Millen had described in his reports of the man known as Albert Johnson he believed had a Scandinavian accent. Johnson never spoke the whole time he was pursued. He didn't yell out, curse, or anything. The only thing he ever did was laugh once when he shot poor Constable Millen. Another curious coincidence is that they both own the same guns. To a T, the same rifle, same type of handgun, and so on. Something that isn't impossible, but very interesting. Arthur Nelson was last seen in May 1931 heading down the Beaver River, which led into the Peel River area, the same location that Albert Johnson would arrive in the same year, just two months later. Another indication that the pair was connected in some way is that a $50 bill in Johnson's possession was traced back to the Bank of Montreal in Mayo, a small town in the Yukon that was in fact issued to Arthur Nelson. Nelson also bought six boxes of kidney pills in Mayo in the spring of 1931, the same type of pills that were found on Albert Johnson. When those that knew Nelson saw the picture of Albert Johnson that has now been seen around the world since he died, 
They said it could possibly be Arthur Nelson they did not know. To see the pictures and to see pictures and more, visit nothingcanada.com and check out the show notes section or head to the links in the show notes below. Many wonder if the pair met along the river and that the Johnson we know murdered Arthur Nelson and took his belongings, explaining the $50 bill and the pills. If he did commit the crime, it may explain also his actions to the police when they came to his door to ask about his trapping license and he reacted by shooting straight at them, no questions asked, the actions of a guilty man. On February 29th, Constable Edgar Millen was laid to rest with full military honors at the Beachmont Cemetery in Edmonton, Alberta. Constable A.W. King survived and retired on August 21st, 1932, and later moved to the U.S. In the winter of 1960-61, to a monument was built for Constable Millen in the spot where he lost his life long ago. In May 1968, a park would be dedicated in Edmonton to the fallen officer, the Edgar Millen Park. In 2009, Discovery Channel aired a show called The Hunt for the Mad Trapper, explaining how they had exhumed the Mad Trapper's body on August 11, 2007 to do a DNA test. To this day, his identity is still not known. All candidates who currently thought before this that he may possibly be a relative of theirs was ruled out during this time. Isotopes found in Albert Johnson's teeth indicated he was not Canadian at all, but most likely Scandinavian or possibly from the Corn Belt of the U.S., which is in the Midwest area. It was determined he was in his 30s at the time of his death and that he had a crooked tailbone, which led to curving in his spine as well. He also had one foot longer than the other. But in the end, that's all we know about the elusive Mad Trapper known as Albert Johnson to this day. His life remains one of Canada's greatest mysteries as to who the man was that terrorized one of our most northern provinces for over a month in the middle of winter so many years ago. I'm Canadian Girl. Until next time, my friends, stay warm. This podcast is a part of Straight Up Strange Productions. Discover more shows like this one at straightupstrange.com. You guys who always stick around to the very end are the absolute best people out there. And we all need friends like you during these times. I'm Canadian Girl. Stay safe, my friends. Thank mm-hmm. you.